0: Frio de Janeiro with Abid Iman. Kaya, g'day, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to Frio de Janeiro, coming to you from Wallylap, Fremantle, Western Australia. My name is Abid Iman, and my word, do we have a ripper conversation on the episode with Robbie Gaspar? Robbie and I have crossed paths a little bit in West Australian football. He's a seriously impressive guy with some awesome stories to tell. He was the first ever Aussie to play professional football in Indonesia. This is one of the world's most populous countries, and they absolutely love football, so you can only imagine the stories he has to tell about that. He's a pioneer when it comes to his extensive experience playing football across Asia, and even coming through the ranks in uh, in Europe as well. A conversation taking a lot of key messages, including what it's like to be an Indonesianist, quite a good term in itself, and the active role that he's played in facilitating international relations through sport in Indonesia. Robbie is a great guy, and there's some awesome messages for the future as well in this conversation. So to keep convos like this flowing on the pod, please make sure to subscribe and tell one of your good mates. Now it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy. Robbie. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure to have you join me on Frio de Janeiro. I think it's perfect timing um, and also the fact that our journeys a little bit have traversed at times. I know you've played at uh, the same cricket club, junior cricket club that I played at, at, Ardross, and you also come from the mean streets of Mount Pleasant, WA. <laughs>
1: Yep, grew up there and um how do you say went to went to primary school there and yeah, loved my time there and also loved playing cricket down at Idris Cricket Club and I think one of the players I actually played with Sean Gillies. Went on to represent the state. So what a player. You could just see he was he was destined for big things when I played with him there.
0: Oh wow, mate. What was your uh, role in cricket? What did you enjoy doing? <laughs>
1: I liked a bit of both you know i like batting and sort of being a left-hander as well and like a little bit of bowling right arm and sort of you know like sort of medium pace and just yeah, just love being out there love playing i think you just you know being here in australia growing up in the summer you know watching a boxing day test and playing cricket out on sort of you know out in the streets or in front of the house as well i'm actually doing that now with my little boy as well you know so we're playing cricket and um yeah he loves it he's actually playing down there at claremont medlands cricket club with his with his mates so it's just great to see You know, playing all different types of sports and cricket, what a great sport. Just love it. So,
0: you're one of those kids that was uh, sports sampling and trying a bit of everything.
1: Definitely, definitely. Sort of done a little athletics, you know, played soccer, played basketball, played uh, Aussie rules at school because at Mount Pleasant we didn't have soccer at school. So I played the Aussie rules and, um, yeah, just tried everything. But how do you say, um, soccer was always my number one love and sort of when I went to high school a John Curtin, everything else took a bit of a backward step and just the fo- soccer, focused on soccer and that was it.
0: Yeah, so tell me about that because – uh, you you did go to Croatia and I'm really interested in what was it like, you know, first of all, being introduced to the game in Australia where it, it it wasn't even in school, for instance. So it's a little bit of a niche sport and then making that move to Croatia. So there's a bit going on there, but I'm really interested.
1: Yeah. So the, my parents' background is Croatian. Um, so, yeah, like we used to, parents used to go down to the Spiel delis club and, um, they had their soccer teams down there as well and then you know my brother played soccer being five years older than me, always wanted to play and then when i turned around five you know sort of got the opportunity to play with spiel Dallies and how do you say it um yeah just love playing soccer and love just that community aspect of the game and you know even still to this day a lot of those players that i played with under eight you know when i was five six and seven and i'm still mates with them right now and um then after that i moved to melville city soccer club when we moved to when we moved to mount pleasant and then winthrop and then um After that, I went to Western Knights where I made my debut, you know, at 16 in the first team. And then um, prior to making my debut, I had the opportunity to go and play in Croatia. They wanted to sign me when I was around 15, and my mum said no. She said, you've got to come back and finish year 11 at least. She was really big on education, you know, getting a good education and finishing schooling and something that she sort of never had the chance to do. And so um, after year 11, I think it must have been bugging her so much. She said, All right, okay, you can go and sort of move to Croatia, move to Haidouk Split. And um, that was like a dream come true, you know, sort of my parents from Croatia, from Makarska, which is maybe an hour and a half away from Split. Um, but you always followed Haidouk Split and just to be able to play for them for such a big club was like like a dream. And my roommate was Darius Sidna, who went on to mm. make 130 caps for Croatia, I think seven of those years when he was playing for the national team. He was captain, you know, captain Shakhtar Donets to a cup winners cup. And um, yeah, sort of now he's actually like director of football as Shakhtar as well. And they're just a few players, I name a few that I played with. And just to be in Europe and playing, you know, like sort of such a big club and traveling around Europe playing tournaments and playing against some really big teams is yeah phenomenal and something I'll never forget. How
0: does a move like that materialize? Because High aren't, aren't just a small club, they're pretty big deals. So how do you move over there and sort of uh, make that adjustment and, and that come about?
1: You know, my dream sort of from around 13 or 14 was just to play professional football. You know, that was my dream. And um, I think I must have been bugged my mum. I want to go overseas, go overseas. So she called my uncle and my uncle went down to Haydook and asked, you know, we've got uh, my nephew. He's played in the state team. He's playing at Western Knights. Is he okay if he comes on trial? And they said, yeah, why not? So I just went over there on trial and I impressed. It took me a little bit of a while to settle in, you know, that sort of that change and that sort of level of football. And you know, just a day in, day out training, and then after a while, I really found my feet. And they asked me to stay, and I really wanted to stay. And but Mum said, "No, you got to come home, finish Year Eleven at least." And then I came home, and as soon as my Year Eleven finished, I was back on that plane, and you know, back over there and playing.
0: You were speaking the language pretty fluently, in that
1: I, I was. I thought I knew how to speak Croatian up until I went over there. You know, like how do you say it? Um, just but being, you know, there and having to speak your day in, day out was pretty tough. You know, luckily the club got me a tutor. And so I was getting tutoring twice a week, which massive help because I didn't realize in Croatian, you know, like that you, you had plural and singular. And when you're speaking to people, you, you know, older people get to speak in plural, then, um, you know, out of respect and stuff like that. And so I got to learn all that. And, um, yeah, it's just still to this day now. It's sort of, I still speak, you know, fluent Croatian has sort of been fantastic. So, you know, like that I was able to sort of learn another language more fluently and read and write as well
0: what is the secret to football in croatia because i know in australia right now we're talking about optimizing our population and the fact that we punch above our weight and croatia definitely with an even smaller population do some amazing things on the world stage so you, know, you you've been there what what is the secret sauce you think
1: oh there's there's a there's a lot of things i think they just they love their football. They have really good programs in place. They start from a young age. It's all about building that technical ability. It's not about winning at a young age. It's about learning how to play the game, play the game in the right way. You know, when I was there, it was just always technical stuff you know, always with the ball, you know, like against the wall, passing, passing, passing on the top of your feet, juggling, you know, like sort of always plenty of small sided games and, you know, like five V2s, you know, four V2s and so on. And, they you know, start from a really young age and, and they play, like to play a lot of small football as well, you know, like futsal as well. And I just, you see these big players, I used to play with these, you know, boys are massive, but they're so good technically and so good on the ball and so mobile. And um, I think, you know, they give their kids a chance as well to play in the top league and they're not afraid to sort of, you know, blood the youngsters. And it's just like a factory. It's just it's phenomenal. You know, three, you know, two, three semifinals in the last six World Cups. For a country of only four and a half million people, they just produce world-class players year in, year out. it's you know, I remember when I was there, Ajax had come over to watch the team that was a couple of years older than us, because they were just a phenomenal team. 13 of those players in the Heydork on the 19s got signed for the first team, and I think 11 them win that national team for that same age, and it was just phenomenal. I remember the Japanese coming over and watching our training sessions and what we were doing, and... Yeah, it was just you know it was really great to be there. And wherever you went to play games, you know, you're you revered. You know, Heyduk or he was you know Dinamo as well. And um, it was just really good to be in such a good footballing environment. You know, so
0: when Croatia played uh, the Socceroos in 2006, you mentioned Dario Sonar and he was on the pitch, yeah. one of the key instigators for Croatia. How were your emotions that night? Where were you watching that game from?
1: Oh mate, funny thing is he did score that free kick. You know, like an unbelievable free kick. You know, um, but to be fair, I was actually playing a game the next day in Indonesia. Um, we had a finals game, and it was on early in the morning. And I actually couldn't watch it. We couldn't get it where we were, and so I woke up the next morning and saw the result. And I was just buzzing that we actually qualified. You know, like <laughs> you know, I was sort of wanted Australia to go further, and just good to see Daria score and. How do you say it? Um, yeah, it was just a bit of a I think dream for everyone to see Croatian Australia, Croatian Australians actually seeing them playing against each other in the World Cup. And how do you say it? Um, yeah, I was more happy to see Australia go through. So yeah, it didn't really worry, it didn't worry me. The result, most importantly, it was Australia won. Went through. It, mate.
0: Yeah, that's it. Then I'm um, really excited to talk about Indonesia with you uh, shortly. Well, I just want to know what it was like to come back to Australia from Croatia because you were playing at some some of the bigger clubs here in Western Australia. What was that adjustment like then?
1: Um, it was pretty tough. Um, but I'd sort of, you know, I'd, I'd grown my game and developed a fair bit. Um, one of the reasons why I probably didn't stay in Croatia, I probably just was, I was sort of 16, 17, and I wasn't probably resilient enough. I didn't have that resilience to stick it out and just sort of continue on. I was sort of pretty homesick. And, you know, we lived an easy life here in Australia compared to what it was in Croatia. And I just sort of it got me down being away from family, being so far away from home. And, you know, I decided to come home and sort of, I signed at uh I was at Western Knights, but then I, I was probably gonna play, but I wasn't gonna be a main player, so I decided to go back and play for you know Coben City. Um and I had a really good year, had like sort of played under Jerry Christie, who actually gave me my chance at Western Knights a few years earlier. And um yeah, we sort of struggled, but I sort of had a pretty good season, sort of ended up top goal scorer, sort of fairest and best, and then I sort of had got a move to Sydney Olympic in the old National Soccer League. So um it was great when I went and played with the Australian schoolboys as well over to the UK, which is such a fantastic experience as well. And um, yeah, how do you say it? Um, yeah, it was just it was, it was just it was great to be home as well, and also got to finish my U twelve as well, which sort of I got into uni after that as well. So,
0: I was trying to look for some of the clues as to how you made the move, the first move to uh, Asian football um, at the time, and I saw a name. What does what does Peter Butler mean to you, and, and that journey that you you took over?
1: Oh, so Peter, he's been like sort of almost like he's been a mentor and almost a father figure to me ever since I moved to Asia. So great. A funny story with Pete, you know, sort of he had a fantastic career playing in over 500 games in the Football League, you know, from all the way from League Two up to the Premier League. And um, I remember playing against him one day when he came back. He was playing for Sorento and I was playing for Perth And I came back from Sydney Olympic. I had a really good game. And after the game, Pete comes up to me and goes, "Rob, if you ever want to move to Asia? let me know or move move overseas, let me know. And I I looked at him, I didn't know who Peter was and I was a bit sort of taken back. All right, no worries. I thanks, you know, mate, appreciate it. Then we played again like again and he came up to me and asked me again and I went off, all right, okay, cool. And then um I went on troll to Italy and um I sort of I was struggling, you know, like and I sort of I called Pete up and I go, Pete, I'm struggling, you know, like I need a I'm looking for a club maybe in England would you be able to help out, you know? And um, he actually sort of within a day got back to me Goes, goes, I've got all these clubs lined up, Bristol City, Middlesbrough, Derby County, all right, just get yourself to England we'll sort you out. So I just jumped on the next floor. I got to England. My brother was living there in London. And I got to Bristol and I was there training for a week, couldn't get a work permit. But then I came back and I just kept in touch with Pete. And um, I actually moved to Brunei before then through through a, um, another contact of mine. And then I came back again. And then I sort of called Pete and I said, Pete, listen, I'm looking to move overseas again. Is there any way you can help out? And he goes, I'll oh, give me a few days. And within a couple of days, he called me back and goes, Rob, um, I've got a trial for you at Sabbath. Do you want to go? And I said, Mate, no, definitely, I want to go, mate. And a couple of days later, I went over there and the rest is history.
0: Rewinding, what is it like when you are on a trial at a club? <laughs>
1: great experience just sort of Italian football it was unbelievable when trial tried Empoli at Pisa Culture as well I was there for three months I was at Empoli for just over a week sort of didn't make it went to Pisa I was there for the rest of the time and I just really enjoyed just the culture the football and how much they love football over there and it was a great experience and I came there after the transfer sort of window had closed and I sort of wanted a sign, but I didn't, you know, just all these things happened and I just probably in the end it sort of didn't happen and sort of came back home. But it was just such a great experience. I learned the language a little bit. I sort of picked up the language because you're just embarrassed in it so much. And, you know, I got to meet so many cool people, you know, watch some serious C games, watched you know, AC Milan play against the Venezia, the San Siro, covered all the way down to sort of of Orlando, Sicily, went to Rome and went to all these cool places while I was there. And it was just such a fantastic experience and, it was just, you know, it was also great seeing the difference, and contrast between England and also Italy, and the way, the different types of trainings as well, and also you know how people dress and how people acted and the culture <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was just so great to sort of just made you, even though it was, like, it was a great experience, it just made you sort of more worldly and enjoy things more, you know. So it was it was great, you know, because I met some really good people who I'm still friends with to this day. So we're looking
0: now at Sabah, and that 2003 season, right? You you make the FA Cup final in Malaysia. So yeah. What is that adjustment like from playing for Perth Soccer Club and some of the, the, the West Australian clubs in the most isolated state in the world to now being in the thick of it playing in front of Rorsch's crowds in massive games? Uh, you know, I saw some YouTube footage of it, and I had to actually say, who's Robbie Gasper there? Because it was <laughs> you with the um, very blonde hair or very bright yeah. colored hair, yeah. and uh, you definitely stood out. You played very well with the, uh, the left foot, had a few free kicks from distance, but... Yeah, that FA Cup final, I'm, I'm just fascinated with that contrast for you.
1: So um moved to Malaysia and actually it didn't start off too well, you know, like I was there and I got injured uh, just for the first game and I missed the first 10 games of the season. And so that was sort of – but um, how do you say that I was the, the president who ended up becoming the foreign minister of Malaysia. You know, I asked him, oh, Dato, can I go home and do my rehab? And he said, no worries. So let me go home and do my rehab. So I, got, I came back, you know, sort of earlier and also fitter and stronger. And then in the league, we had a really good run where I sort of actually scored 10 goals from 16 games. And so it was fantastic. And we also had a really good FA Cup run um, where we made the semifinal, but sort of we, due to crowd, a crowd trouble, We got sort of kicked out of that, out of the FA Cup final. I scored a a free kick. I thought it was actually a direct free kick, but it was actually indirect. The referee ruled it out and the fans lost it. They come on the field and (laughs) they were just riding and then they abandoned the game. We lost the game 3 0. We're out of that. But then um, we went on this fantastic Malaysia Cup run. And um, yeah, we sort of, I scored three goals in sort of the Malaysia Cup, but um, you know, we sort of, we made it to the quarterfinals, and we played Kedah in the in the quarterfinals. Who we we drew with on the final day of the season to stop them from actually winning the the league. Um, so we played them home and away. And in the first first game, we, we beat them one 0 Went away, and that first half, I scored after five or six minutes on the on the counter. Um, Reds one who played this unbelievable ball around the corner. He just wasn't even looking; just knew where I was, and it was just phenomenal. This kid had so much talent. He could have played anywhere, you know, and. Um, and then I'd never been under so much pressure in that next 40 minutes of the first half. I don't know how we didn't concede. But we went in, in the sheds, nil, nil, 1-0 uh, up. And like that, Kadar must have been walking off thinking, what's going on here? We've just thrown everything at him, the kitchen sink. We still haven't scored. And then we came out in the second half and we scored two goals in quick succession. Then the game was over at 3-0. But then, um, went to the semi-final. We we're playing against Perak, who won the championship and they beaten us at home in the league, home and away. And, um, we drew 1-1 at home. And I think the, how do you say it? the the game, just all the atmosphere got to us. It was the first time that Sabre filled the stadium there for a long time. And um, we drew one all and we sort of didn't play too well, but we went back for the second leg and, you know, they thought they were going to just roll us and just beat us easily. And, you know, after like 78 minutes, I sort of scored again to break the deadlock to make it 1-0 and 2-1 in aggregate. And then Funny, we scored again in the ninety-first, and they scored in the ninety-third, and then we scored again in the ninety-fourth and ninety-fifth, and we won three-one. And we're playing in the, then we will go into the Malaysia Cup final, and that Malaysia Cup final is something I'll never forget. My mum, my, my stepdad, my brother flew over for the game, and just the build-up, the lead-up to it was just something to you know, like just phenomenal. It's probably the best experience I've ever had in football, but also the worst because we ended up losing 3 one in the final, but um. Yeah, we sort of had a man sent off after around 55 minutes, but, and we we're just pushing to get an equaliser at 1-0 and they just caught us on the counter attack twice in the, la- in the maybe the last 15 or 20 minutes, but we gave it everything. And the guy who scored Hatch against us in the final scored 50 goals that year, an Argentinian boy, and he ended up going and playing in, in Mexico. And yeah, it was just a great first season, you know, I like to be involved in Malaysia, you know, do well in the league. We finished fourth FA Cup semi-final, the Malaysia Cup. F-A- F-A- major cup final and how do I say, just sort of I you know, just wanted to play in Asia more and just sort of really enjoyed it and yeah, the rest is history.
0: That's so cool that your family could be there, you know, the was it the Bukit Jalil Stadium, one of the biggest in the world?
1: Yeah, yeah, Bukit Jalil and um, they were there and along with 25,000 other Sabahans there as well and just to walk out and see so many Sabahan fans there and you know, like it was just phenomenal but we're playing a team from KL, you know, MPPJ uh, Slangor and they were supporting, you know, like slang. Well, they all came out, and it was just, oh, I was just something I'll never forget. Firecrackers going off, and fans going crazy, and um, yeah, it was just such a great experience, you know. Apart from the result, but um, yeah, something that I'll never forget.
0: And if we look at Brunei in your time there as well, you played for the Prince.
1: How yep. does that happen? <laughs> it doesn't happen to
0: everybody, mate.
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, it happened like in two thousand and two. I was playing at Perth and. Um, the opportunity came to come up and go and play in Brunei and I always wanted to play overseas and I thought, yeah, I just want to give it a crack. So I went over there and you know, it was just such a surreal experience. Um meeting the prince, being able to have we were having lunch with him every day. Uh, I remember the first day I got there, his his sort of um minder or his sort of advisor comes up to me, Rob, Rob, you know, the prince wants to see you, wants you to come with him, and I go what? And he, so I ran outside and he goes, I dump in my car, so it's brand new Porsche Turbo S and dump it alongside him and he showed me all around Brunei for the rest of the day, you know, this is where where I live, this is this, this is that and I was just blown away, I'm sitting next to royalty and um, he's actually, the guys who look after him, his, um, sort of his security were driving a v, VP Commodore behind us, a black one and I'm, I love it, <laughs> VP Commodore from Australia, you know, <laughs> so, um, but he was a great guy and just really humble and he used to train with us every day and, you know, i would have lunch with him every day and have a bit of a laugh with him. And he was just a really good guy, you know, like, and just to be able to sort of, you know, you know, get to know royalty, you know, like, and he was just, yeah, down to worth and just like us. And yeah, that was such a great experience. And I actually, I was there six months. And then after I finished at Sabah, I had the opportunity to go back there again and play for another six months. So another half season and it was such a great experience and yeah, something I'll never forget. You know, because you know, living in Brunei with all that royalty there, was just sort of another. It's just something you know, really great to experience. And yeah, you know, it was you know, seeing the Sultan drive past in his car with all the sort of security, and you know, like if his plane hadn't gone around for a few days, it, it ended it up and just doing laps around Brunei and the airport and stuff like that, just to keep it moving and all the beautiful hotels and the polo fields and and whatnot. You know, it was just yeah, it was something to see. It was such a great experience
0: in those um in those structures of football, where you have uh, you know these wealthy owners or you have um, royalty involved with clubs, what's it like as a player, you know that pressure because I guess you're there to perform. How's that dynamic?
1: Yeah, like, how do you say in Brunei, the prince is actually quite, he's pretty cruisy, you know, like sort of, you had three princes who had teams, you know, so the, had the Crown Prince had his own team as well, DPMM, and then you had Prince Akeem had, um, I think, it was it home or something like that, they used to call it. And he was pretty cruisy, he just sort of, guys, just go out, do your best, enjoy yourselves, and whatever happens, happens, you know, like, and, um, but like sort of when you're playing, when I was playing in Malaysia, you know, like for a minister and, you know, the sort of, the trees and um, that were there, it was, yeah, a lot of pressure, especially also in Indonesia, you know, like, um, yeah, they sort of want results and, you know, like, and, you know, being a foreigner there, if you're not performing, you know, like sort of your job's on the line. So, you know, I, I was in Asia for 10 years, over 10 years and I had 10, one year contract. So it was constantly, you have to be on the ball and, yeah, not sort of. How do you say it? Um, dropping dropping your standards. So, but um, you know, I I really enjoyed it. You know, like, and I enjoyed meeting these meeting these different, diverse, you know, group of people. You know, like, so it was just yeah, it was something I felt I was pretty honoured to do, be able to do something I love and travel around Asia and doing it.
0: Yeah, well, the next step in your travels was Indonesia, and uh, the listener can't see what our attire is right now, but um, I'm wearing a batik from my best mate. Tim from Indonesia, lives in Jakarta, and uh, and you've got the national team jersey of the mighty Indonesia team. Do they have a nickname?
1: Oh yeah, they call them the Guruda, you know, like uh, so Guruda Mano, the you know sort of the red sort of eagles and that. And um, yeah, so how do you say it? Um, I'm wearing the you know Guruda. And I've become a bit of an Indonesianist, just like I see yourself. You're wearing the you know the batik, which are pretty cool, and you know like you can wear it on a night out as well. So it looks good on you.
0: Yeah, we it's should make time. some. Uh, thanks, mate. Thanks. We should make some World Cup buttocks or something. something uh... <laughs> that's it.
1: That's it. That's it.
0: How did the move materialise to get to that first club in Indonesia?
1: So I had a, you know had a couple of years in in Malaysia, then six months in Brunei, and then I was just sort of in touch with Pete, um, all the time, and he goes, Rob, I've just um, I've just sort of spoken to an agent in Indonesia. His name's you know Jules and Dennis. So Jules actually, you know, he played for Cameroon in the World Cup. And he had a bit of a career in Indonesia as well. And he called me up and he goes, Rob, um, I've got a, tr- a club for you in Indonesia. Would you like to come over? And I said, love to, mate. When do you want me to go? He goes, oh, they wanted you here yesterday. So <laughs> the next day I bought my flight and I was on my way, you know. So and no other Australian had been there and played there before. And so I was almost stepping in there to the unknown. And um, I had no reference point, what to expect. And I played against the Indonesian national team. In Perth for the West Australian state team and they're a decent side and I went there and I was just blown away by the quality of the football and the standard and um, the passion for the game and how intense it was and, um, yeah, it was just... I'll never forget that first friendly match I had. Uh, I sort of arrived there on a Thursday afternoon, had a light session. Friday, we trained twice and then Saturday, we jumped on a bus and we went to this place. Um, we played against Plito KS... And um, I remember we have gone into the stadium, you know, like to warm up and I was pretty, I was focused and I sort of, I could hear noise around, but I always had my headphones on when I was warming up. And then um, I didn't really notice what was going on and they go, we're going outside. And so we walked outside and I I turned around, looked at the grandstand. The whole grandstand was full and I couldn't believe it must have been like seven and a half thousand people there. And then slowly but surely the whole stadium started filling up and we played this friendly game and it must have been over 15,000 people and I thought, wow, what's what's going on here? And I'm singing and dancing and chanting and I'll never forget, you know, like the standard was great and I thought, this is great, you know, I'm really enjoying this. And, um, yeah, how do you say it? I signed a couple of days later and then um, the season started how do you say, it, that weekend, the next weekend. And I didn't get my ITC, my clearance, until a couple of weeks later. And then I made my debut away from home against Presikapas um in Mandiun. And, yeah, it was just, I was sold. I just loved it from then on. And, yeah, I was there ever since. So.
0: What is the structure of football in Indonesia? Was there promotion relegation at that time? Was it, I know they're called Liga 1 now, but I understand it was different back then. So how's that evolved and the yeah, like
1: they had like this sort of Liga Super, so they had uh, the West Division and the East Division because Indonesia is so large. It's 7,500 islands spread across 5,200 Ks and the travel can be brutal sometimes. And um, I was in the West sort of conference and so we played teams from Surabaya up towards Aceh um, in the Sumatra and then you had the East and then the top four came together, played this thing called the Lapan Basada, the Big Eight. Um, to be fair, the team that we had in the first year was the best team that we had. I played in when I lost in Indonesia in terms of quality and players and the amount of national team players on the team and also the foreign players are phenomenal as well. And But for some reason, we just couldn't connect we couldn't gel and the coach couldn't get us to play a decent decent way. And we sort of struggled. And um, yeah, how do you say it? It was just um, fantastic. They had promotional negotiations. So each division had 14 and 14, so 28 teams in the in the top league. And then you had six division six uh, six uh, conferences in the sort of in the second tier as well. And then they moved into a tournament as well, so it got promoted up to the top division, up to, to the east and west. But then later on, three years later, they made the one division called the Liga Super or the Superliga, and um, they had 18 teams there. And, yeah, so that, that, that travel is pretty brutal. But with Indonesia, they used to make it a little bit easier for you. You used to play two games away, two games at home, so you wouldn't have to travel so far twice you would know, be like, say, so two games away in the space of five or six days, and you come home and play two games at home in the space of five or six days, and and also from a cost factor as well for clubs.
0: Seventeen and a half thousand islands, and you mentioned the the travel and the the vast distances, um, which I guess from the Perth perspective here in Western Australia, we're we're closer to Indonesia than we are to Sydney and Melbourne. You know, our own cities in our country, our own capital cities. So it's, it's a country of such significance to us, and you had the opportunity to have this uh, front row seat in in terms of the development of Indonesia into this country that it is today. What was it like, actually, just travelling through and, and seeing the, the diversity of the country?
1: It was a phenomenal experience, you know, like Indonesia. You know, like Australia is only 3,800 kilometres from east to west, and, um, you know, Indonesia is 5,200 k's, and you've got all these different ethnic groups in one sort of country brought together by, you know, Bas Indonesia, and you have 700 different languages as well in, in Indonesia. And um, one thing that brings the country together is the football as well. And just to be able to travel, you know, like I always say, even West Java is different to Central Java, the manner of the people. And Central Java is different to East Java, you know, and they're all their neighbours as well. But you know, you have a look at sort of East Java, you have a, a population of 45 million people. And then you got Central Java, a population of 40 million people. Then you go to West Java, a population of 50 million people. And um it's just the difference, you know, like your different teammates and how they behave and the different types of characters as well. And I knew when we were sort of going to play Makassar in Sulawesi, we are on for a really tough game. It was going to be pretty, pretty physical, um, pretty tough. Yeah, very high tempo, but we've been playing teams from Java. It's very technical. we not as high tempo or, or as physical as what you're playing teams from. You know, the likes of sort of even Papua, you know, like when we played against Percy Pura, you know, they were phenomenal. You know, they're like the Brazilians of Indonesia. They were just technically superb, you know, physical as well. And you knew you were in for a game. and just traveling all over Indonesia. I was just so blessed, you know, across the Jaipur a couple over seven times, up past Aceh to a place called Sigli, which is two hours past Aceh and all the way through Sumatra, all the way through Kalimantan, Java. You know, sometimes we're doing up to 20 trips, you know, when we're playing games, you know, playing, you know, throughout the season, away trips and, to go up through to some places I've never actually heard of or even seen on the map, it was just like, like it was—it was like part of the whole, you know, experience. And I just sort of, I, I just loved it, enjoyed it. And you, wherever you played, there was full stadiums. They so love their football, um, and yeah, just made it so almost, you know—so much more enjoyable as well.
0: Being brought up in a Mediterranean climate, uh, what was it like playing in those uh, sweaty and uh, tropical conditions that you would have been encountered with?
1: Yeah, it was pretty tough to be fair to start off with. Like in Malaysia, we'd kick off at eight fifteen. I remember only maybe a couple of games we played at four o'clock kickoffs. But in Indonesia, the first three or four years, we didn't play many night games. Most of them were like sort of a like three o'clock or three thirty or four PM kickoff, depending where you're playing. And um and that was pretty brutal, you know. But um you got you got used to it after a while and you know, by the second half when the sort of the shade had gone over from the grandstand, you know, started picking up because it's sort of, yeah, like a little bit cooler and stuff like that. And, yeah, it was almost by the end of the season, it was like survival of fittest because you played so many games, you know, playing some of those 40, 50 games a year with, with some brutal travel as well. And, yeah, it was almost like survival of fittest. And, um, yeah, just if you looked after yourself really well, you know, like that's probably where I sort of – I sort of pretty done pretty well. So, coming from Australia, where that sports science aspect was something we thrived on and we've done really well. So, you know, I used to always have my fluids, my recovery, and so forth, and make sure i get my rest, wearing my skins when I'm traveling, making sure I've got my protein powders and shakes and that when I'm playing and, you know, after when I'm playing as well. And just sort of give me the best chance possible to perform. At the best of my ability, so uh, yeah, so it wasn't easy, but something that sort of you know you got used to, and um, yeah, you just had to really get your rest and really just try and sort of yeah mitigate everything. So
0: you said that you've you've played against players who are like the Brazil of you know Indonesia, fantastic technical ability. Why do you think, or what do you think Indonesia needs to do to now really make a mark on on world football or Asian football to to start off with as well?
1: Yeah, really great question. I've been sort of asked this before, and I just think, you know, like Indonesia need to follow a follow up plan. You know, they, they usually sometimes when they've got a plan, they sort of change, you know, top and change. You've just got to believe in themselves, believe in a plan, put a plan in place with respect to, you know, like youth development, with respect to the league, improving their facilities for, you know, even sort of their, for their top division, encouraging more players to go out and play overseas and get out of their comfort zones as well, and just see from grassroots football, you um, Starting leagues a lot earlier, where they're playing a lot more games earlier on. I don't think they're playing enough games at junior levels as well, and and probably what people don't realise as well, because Indonesia is so vast and so diverse, it's it's sort of hard for them to sort of you know have a have a decent league for the younger kids as well. So, but. Um, I'll, I'm a big believer in that football starts at home, home with Tom Bayer, And I think, you know, I think the nation can implement that because they've got the love and the passion for it. It's just how do we sort of have a plan with where they sort of engage with it as a coach education as well, proving the standard of the league. And also, you know, like just, yeah, how do you say it? Um, just believe in themselves and, you know, like sort of have a better plan in place, which is actually going to follow and not sort of chopping changing and Don't think just three, four years down the track, think 15, 20 years and think big and believe in themselves. The
0: passion is something that is world class, and it actually really did surprise me looking at um, some things on the internet around the fan culture and ultras in Indonesia. But we know in football that sometimes passion and it can just uh, tip over a little bit and become quite dangerous at times. But I want to actually talk about what it's like to be a, a big star at a big club. Uh, Malang, what what is it like walking around and just being a superstar when you you know in in Perth and. Those places, your humble beginnings, and and now you're in one of the biggest countries in the world, and you're you're known by everyone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, how do you say it? Um, I think people realize, you know, like sort of here in Australia, how big football is overseas. You know, like and I was just blown away by the passion and how much Indonesians love football. The games on TV every day, live, and um, you know, I had a long career there, and I really enjoyed myself. You know, sort of, I've done. I think I've done pretty well as well there, and. You know, like they love their social media. I love their internet, and um, yeah, I was sort of pretty recognizable having blonde hair. And how do you say it? Um, I just I played for some pretty decent clubs, and I just I was pretty blessed to have a, you know a decent career there. And I sort of I played with some you know players, and like one of my roommates had five million followers on Twitter. You know, like and one of the owners of Indonesian football one of the football clubs, he has sixty four million followers on Instagram, and. Um, you know, like it's it's pretty humbling and, you know, like just to be recognised for what you do. And it's one of the reasons why I stayed in the Asia Public for so long is because of the passion for football and playing in front of big, big crowds week in, week out. And you felt like you're playing in Europe. You know, I gave Europe a crack and you know, I sort of, I realised probably at a young age I wasn't going to be good enough to be able to crack it in the big leagues and for me, you know, like going to Indonesia was the next best thing, you know, not too far from Perth, from home and, you know, only a four-hour flight away from, you know, from Jakarta to Perth or three and a half hours from Bali and, you know, like big crowds and, you know, you felt appreciated and, um, yeah, and I sort of, more Australians started coming over and the league was was fantastic as well. It was, it was enjoyable. You played against some really good players and, you know, I played with a Liberian international. I played over 70 caps for Liberia, boys that have played for the Chilean national team, you know, for the Cameroonian national team and, you know, boys that have played at really high levels and um, Indonesian boys as well with no slashes as well. And then we, you know, when I was playing there from around 2008 to maybe around 2011, it was the best league in Southeast Asia. So you yeah, had the best players from Thailand, from Singapore, from Malaysia and, you know, from Vietnam coming in there and playing and just so sort the of league was just, you know, was just buzzing, you know, like, and playing from big crowds and, you know, I was like, you know, playing off in some big teams and, you know, I just really enjoyed my time as well. But it was just, yeah, it was phenomenal.
0: You made such an impression there that you were able to take a more, um, more of a driver's seat in terms of leadership for the players, which I find really, really interesting around the, you know, the Professional Footballers Association locally there. How did that come about and and that passion for that side of the game?
1: Um, I probably sort of, because where I played the position, I played sort of holding midfield. I always felt like a little bit of leader on the the park there. And um, players on aid issues used to come to me and always ask me for assistance and stuff like that. And I was never too afraid to sort of speak to the management on behalf of the players. And then the opportunity to come up to, how do you say, get on board the the executive committee for their players' union. Um, So I sort of went there and I sort of nominated and, um, lucky enough and I was humbled to be able to sort of get on the executive committee with some of the biggest players in Indonesia and you know, some of their biggest players in history and just to be able to work alongside them and trying to, at a stage when there were a lot of issues in the game there, to be alongside them and just fighting for, on behalf of the players. And I think that's one of our, you know, Australian sort of traits. We stick up for the mates. We do what's right, you know, no matter, you know, like sort of, know like i wasn't afraid to sort of speak up and i think i was probably respected probably more for that as well and um you know i just sort of wanted to see the game grow and i felt that the players needed a voice you know for the game to be able to grow and at a time when you know we were struggling to have a voice and a lot of players not getting paid on time a lot of friends who were sort of not getting paid you know some up to three four five six seven eight months without a wage and i went six months without a wage and I just thought, you can't, how do you become the best footballer you're supposed to be? How's the game supposed to grow when, you know, all these issues are happening happening around non-payment and just sort of basic things that we take for granted in Australia wasn't happening, you know. So, um, yeah, I sat on their committee for two years. I think I was the first Australian player ever to sit on a foreign players' unique executive and something that I'm proud of to this day. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it as well.
0: What were some of the other issues that were facing players at the time?
1: You had the one with non-payment, um, and just sort of basic things, just not, you know, not like just decent training facilities, decent medical facilities, um, you know, like even with respect to travel, decent accommodations, stuff that, you know, players probably, you know, like probably you know, in, in bigger leagues take for granted. Uh, also, having a place having a voice with respect to their schedule, you know, like I remember playing 13 games in 43 days and eight of those games were away and, one of those games that took us 20 hours from when, when we woke up to when we, to when we got home. So there was like three flights. Um, I think four airports and, you know, a bus ride and we had to back up a couple of days later, play another game. And, you know, you can't, you can't be the best you can be. The game, the league can't grow when you're sort of under that much, you know, we're not robots, you know, we need rest, you know, we need decent facilities, you know, like, and, you know, we're training on our own, sometimes on our main pitch and that just wasn't conducive to, you know, like, Indonesia has all the all the ingredients to be a success with respect to the passion, you know, the sort of the numbers of people that come to games and so forth. And they can build that infrastructure, but they weren't doing it at that stage. And luckily they are now and hopefully we're going to see, you know, sort of Indonesia really growing and becoming a, a just not just an Asian power, a world power in football.
0: Well, most of your dealings, were you speaking in Bahasa and was that really helping you to connect with the different player groups and, and the like?
1: Definitely. So when I got there, um, I saw that, how do you say, that it wasn't like Malaysia. Malaysia got away and being be able to speak English. Um, So everyone spoke English. But um, when I came to Indonesia, you know, no one spoke English. And I also saw the foreign players spoke Indonesian as well. And I thought, far out, I've got to learn the language pretty quick. Yeah. (laughs) Fortunately, I sort of had, you know, I spoke English and Croatian. I think learning a third language, it's a little bit easier. And uh, so I just jumped right into it. And maybe after a year, I was I was pretty fluent. I get by in that as well. And always got this great story. Um, I played at the club, and we had a, a Korean boy. I didn't speak Korean. He didn't speak English. I had a boy from Brazil. He spoke Portuguese. I didn't speak Portuguese. I had a boy from uh, from Argentina. Who spoke Spanish. You know, I didn't speak Spanish. We had a Cameroonian who spoke French. And I didn't speak French. And I spoke English. We all spoke Indonesian together. You know, oh, so wow. I had <laughs> mates looking at me like, "Oh, what's going on here? You guys are speaking Indonesian." And to this day, today, a lot of my former teammates the foreigners we all speak Indonesian together and um yeah it was just you know to learn the language I think you know like it just made things a lot easier I could sort of enjoy my time a lot more and the first thing I told all the Australian boys that came over to Indonesia, players, i say, guys, learn the language as quick as you can because you're going to make your time a lot easier, but also a lot more enjoyable. And, you know, if I ask you to go out, go out, immerse yourself in the culture, in the language, and trust me, you'll enjoy yourself a lot more there. And, um, cause I, I saw the players that didn't sort of want to learn the language, they struggled, you know, what they sort of, that didn't last as long as the players that sort of had, you know, learned the language. It just really took time to sort of, you know, just learn in Bahasa Indonesia.
0: Nowadays, you have Duolingo, but what were you? What were the resources you were leaning on back then?
1: Oh, I had like a little pocket dictionary um, that I used, uh, just asking plenty of questions. Um, yeah, so because the Liberian International, the first team I played for, um, he'd sort of, you know, help me out, translate for me as well. And, yeah, just sort of just trying to spend as much time as I can around, you know, the Indonesian boys as well. And, um, you know, listen to plenty of music. You know, like, you know, speaking to a few girls here and there as well, learn the language, texting backwards and forwards with people and um yeah, I learned a lot of um lang, you know, which probably wasn't wasn't the best thing as well, you know, like I came back to learn you know, went back to university, I learned Barthes, Indonesia, you know, formally, and that didn't really help because I learned so much slang, I had a lot of bad habits and stuff like that, but um, yeah, it was just trying to immerse yourself and just trying even, I used to read the newspaper and see different words and just sort of, you know, look in the dictionary, what does this mean and stuff like that and just first to start off with football football words, football combos, you know, like left, right, push, squeeze, man on, turn, um, yeah, and stuff like that, well done, and um, and then like sort of, you know, like other types of words as well and um, yeah. And then just slowly we start learning more and more. You can piece things together. It becomes a lot easier. And So, um, yeah, so I say to anyone who's looking to go and work in Indonesia or, you know, it doesn't matter if it's just football or anything, learn the language, you know, because just make, make sure it makes you enjoy your time a lot more definitely.
0: And that's one of the things. I've seen you go to schools here in in Perth and you're talking about, talking to younger people about the importance of Learning the language that is across our neighbors, basically, though, hundreds of millions of people are speaking it, and the opportunity that brings to them. I see you are really passionate about that. So, uh, how have you evolved to that uh, that work that you do now, speaking the the good word about teaching uh, or learning Bahasa to younger people?
1: Yeah, as you sort of mentioned, yeah, you know, we've seen a massive decline in sort of students learning learning the language. And I think that's you know it's really disappointing because you know Indonesia is our nearest neighbor um you know like strategically you know like geopolitically also like economically in you know, the top four economy by 2050 and how do you get to know your nearest neighbor you know like on a more you know like sort of intimate level or you know like sort of better develop people to people and if you don't know their language you know like so they can really get to know people by learning their language and develop real true long-lasting relationships and um yeah it's sort of disappointing that we seeing sort of a massive decline in that and i'm passionate about you know fast indonesia and um, I'm trying to use sport as a bit of a hook or a bit of a tool to sort of get kids interested in it as well and you know saying how I'm jealous that they're learning Bahasa Indonesia in school and I never got to learn it and would have made my experiences at the start in Indonesia a whole lot more easier and enjoyable if I learned their language and it doesn't matter, it's not just have to be sport, it can be music, it can be you know food culture, it can be arts, it can be business and so on and I think you know like just trying to encourage your kids to stick at it, you know, keep on going, it's you know, I know I can be tough sometimes but if you put the time in it'll be worth it and you know, it's well about that point of difference you know like and when you're going for a job you know like um you know you know apart from you know sort of having that sort of you know, basic degree on also speak another language or you know and so forth it doesn't have to be bus and Indonesia it can be you know like French can be Japanese it could be so forth just can we learn languages and there's a crazy stat there are more people learning bus in Indonesia in Germany than what they are learning here here in Australia so um, you know, I travel around and um, just try and encourage, just, you know, the kids to just to stick at it, you know. I know it's not easy, and but, you know, if they do put the time and effort at the reward will be there later on down the track.
0: Yeah, hopefully the, the school curriculum can start to reflect that as well. So, yeah, big work there. And um, I'm really glad that you mentioned food because in terms of cultural immersion, that is one of the greatest ways you can, <laughs> you can get involved. And there's some amazing cuisine in Indonesia. But I'm also imagining that as an elite player, could you indulge as much as you probably wanted to what was that like
1: oh not really because we're playing so many games in that and um yeah you had to watch what you eat and i was pretty strict my diet uh but sometimes if you travel to certain places you couldn't places like that were sort of small towns and you couldn't really sort of be too picky just to sort of eat whatever was there and you know, I sort of really immersed myself in the food and the culture and going out with the players and trying where I would say if I was in, you know, in, in sort of, you know, Sumatra, the, the Sumatran cuisine or, you know, in Makassar, you know, my favourite cuisine is, is Choto Makassar, like a soup from this place in Sulawesi Makassar and, you know, the Nasi goreng China in different places all around Indonesia and, um, you know, Sotayam or the, you know, soup and that and I really embraced that, I really enjoyed it and, um, you know, some of the foods that, you know, I couldn't really sort of eat too much of but, yeah I sort of made sure that sort of I was there I tried and just sort of yeah and also it's about conversation you go there you have food together you can talk have a good time and it's a good conversation start and you know with people and get to know you so you go around you know friends houses and you know and everything in Indonesia a lot of it rolls around food as well they love their food and they're real foodies and they love coming to Australia and trying our food and traveling all around the world and you know sort of trying different food and so it was you know, it was fantastic just to see the different food on offer as well and some of the best even international food, you know, like sort of I've like had the best Japanese ever I've ever had was in, in Jakarta. I was just blown away by how good the Japanese food was as well and, you know, Mediterranean food and also sort of Middle Eastern food and so forth. So, um, yeah, it was, Indonesia was just phenomenal and just because I've never been there before, I went there in 2005, I was just blown away by how big and how diverse it was. Uh,
0: I had a chat with um, a, a, a GoJak driver when I was there in uh, the last time, about four years ago now. And I love like, chatting to locals as well, like you mentioned. And I asked uh, this gentleman, what's your favourite part of the country that you'd love to visit or you have visited? And he mentioned um, a place I never heard before, which was Raja Ampat.
1: Yep, Raja Ampat. Yeah, like have you been there yourself? No, but I played against Percy Rum Raja Ampat and we played in Sodong. So we didn't get the chance to go out there, so which is disappointing because it's just beautiful, unbelievable
0: yeah uh, do you have a favorite region i've, I've seen f- photos of that and that looks amazing but do you know anything better or, or-
1: oh so i have a great story i went to papua and um we played against this team called Persiman manakwadi so we we're scheduled to fly out around one p- and um p butler was just like a person he'd he liked to explore places wherever he went and um he woke us up all early around, you know, like sort of we're expecting to sleep in after the game around 7.30. He's knocking on our doors and going, come on, guys, everyone get up, get up. And we're going, come on, Pete. And he goes, no, no, come on, everyone get up, get up. We're jumping on the bus. Let's go. He goes, get your, get your shorts on, grab your towels. Let's go. So we just jumped on the on the bus and we drove this place on, and I, we came to this beach, palm trees, white sand, crystal blue water. And I just went, wow, this is beautiful. And I'll never forget it there were all these um, tyres that were blown up and tubes and we all jumped on and we're like around 100 metres offshore just in this beautiful blue water. Like just, it was the best experience ever. You know, in the middle of Papua. You know, no one around apart from us, all our teammates together, bonding, having a great time, this beautiful beach. Um, Yeah, so it was similar to Rajah just phenomenal. You know, it's called the Four Kings, Rajah Umpat, and it's a World con- con- uh, Conservation Heritage listed site and a great diving place. But, you know, next best thing was me, was going to, you know, um, Manakwadi, the beach there, and something I'll never forget as well.
0: Wow, mate, unbelievable. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? So many Australians head over to just your usual, your Balis and, and a few people after a couple of trips would go, like Bali is the gateway, and then would maybe be a bit more adventurous, but there's so much more to see, isn't there?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, like, as you said, a country of seven and a half thousand islands, you know, when there's just so much to explore. And just so diverse and phenomenal and, um, you know, Jokowi's trying to develop, I think it's the next 10 Balis or different tourist pots, you know, all the way from Lake Tobar in Sumatra across to Raja Rumpad and, yeah, you can go up to Manado. you can dive off the, you know, the islands there in Manado, which is some of the best diving islands in the world as well and, yeah, it was just phenomenal being able to travel to all these different places and see all these cool places and um, yeah, have this experience and I got to do it playing football as well and you know, like even like Solo, and you know, um also you know, just off East Java, some of the surfing islands there as well. You know, like Banyawangi and that. And I never got to go, but I got to go to Banyawangi, But I never went surfing, and I never forget. I was there in the first first year, we went and played this team called Seven Padang in Sumatra, and we flew in there, and it's just it's just like sort of small city, and I saw all these Australian guys with surfboards, and I'm going. I went up to him, and I go, boys, what are you doing? He goes well, we've got some of the best surfing islands here in the world off the Mentales, I think. And I went, really? He goes, yeah, we get a boat for 15 hours out and just surf for a week. I thought, how cool is that? And you know, like and they sort of, you know, in Padang, this small town with all these other Aussies as well there and I'm there to play football and they're off there to play surf and having a conversation and stuff like that. It's just yeah, it was just, just a great experience. You never know where you're gonna see an Australia, you know. So it was, it's a great experience.
0: That's the best thing about Aussies, isn't it? That we're everywhere, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: it, that's it. We don't mind travelling,
0: you know, so yeah. immersing ourselves. <laughs> Uh, In terms of travelling for you, because you're now based in Perth, um, and, and how often can you get yourself over to Indonesia?
1: I used to get over there probably when I was working with the World Players Union, at least you know four or five times a year. I was back over there um, last November. That was the first time back since COVID. I was there just before COVID sort of started um, for a mate's wedding, but then I was over there for the B20 in Bali, um, in Musadua in November, and that was a fantastic experience just to get over there for four or five days. And you know, it was just a great to be back in Indonesia. It feels like I'm back home sometimes. You know, like I just love my time there and love the love the culture. You know, I love spending time with a lot of people and just sort of you know get along with it so well and um yeah I look to hopefully get back there at least two or three times a year and just sort of keep up with my language Indonesian language skills and just see what's going on because Indonesia is constantly changing, always evolving. There's always something happening over there. And it's just great, you know, just sort of get up there and catch up with old friends and who I sort of almost class as family now as well. And you
0: can enjoy a couple more rendangs without having to worry about uh, <laughs> that's it, that's, and it. <laughs> that's <laughs>
1: it. That's it, that's <laughs> it.
0: Uh, FIFA Pro, mate, because so uh, the world, the World Players Union is somewhere that you you elevated your work, and um, that's a really interesting space because now at a global level, you're supporting player development and that movement. So, what were you seeing at a global level?
1: I was, I just feel that you know, from a player's point of view, we need a voice. We need to be at the table when it comes to you know, like sort of how. Leagues are going to be run and how things are going to be structured as well. You know, we're not not, we're not going to have, you know, like we can't have the whole say, but we sort of everyone's got to work together for the better of the game. You know, so if it's you know the clubs, if it's the federations, the fans, the coaches, the the players as well, everyone needs to work together. And um, so, after my time sitting on the on the board of the executive for the World Players Union, um, the chair of FIFA Pro Asia, Brendan Schwab, who's become a really close friend and also mentor of mine asked me, Rob, um, would you come on board and help me restart the Malaysian Players' Union, which went dormant for maybe, how do you say, two years. And I said, I'd love to, Brendan. So, um, yeah, I sort of, you know, he set me a task of getting the Players' Union restarted in Malaysia. And I went up there and over the next, it was, I think it was from the uh, beginning of 2013 to I worked with the Malaysian Players' Union up to maybe in the middle of 2014. I sort of, you know, got the Players' Union up and running We organised maybe 250 players, elected a new executive committee, president, vice president, done a CEO search, who's still the CEO today. He's now sitting on the global board of of the World Players Union. Um, You know, got an office um and just yeah it was just such a great experience to go up there and just something I was so passionate about as well and I think my language skills because I learned the language in Indonesia helped me so much going back to Malaysia and reconnecting with with former teammates and also with players that I played against or probably hadn't heard of me in also but I spoke the language so I thought, oh, this guy, he sat on the play union board in Indonesia, but he also spoke our language. You can see he's passionate. He's played here in Malaysia, but also played in Indonesia for a long time. And, you know, I'd actually go to the clubs and say, listen, I'm coming in to speak to your players. Is that okay? If they said yes or no, I'd actually go up and speak to them and say, you, know, you can be there if you don't like what I'm saying, please pull me up. But end of the game, I want to see the game in Malaysia grow. And you know, they used to come along to the meetings, and you know, like, and you know, we'd work together, and you know, and I'd organize the players, and you know, it was such a fantastic experience. And then from there, I helped with the Indonesian Players Union, you know, with their organizing as well and strategy stuff as well. How do we grow, you know, like, to we sort of the Players Union in Indonesia as well, further, and also in India, and also stuff in Korea. and, also in um, Japan and um, and also then I sort of led me to work with a Players Union here in Australia, which is sort of also a fantastic experience as well.
0: Yeah, I mean you're a life member there, which is the highest honour you can get. So congratulations on that. Um, I think what I've seen through your story as well is just that commitment to learning and education development. You know, you've gone back to university and, and are you currently still studying as well?
1: No, it's after eight years, I decided I needed a break, you know, so from when I retired, I sort of, you know, end of 2013, I just sort of, you know, studying all the way up until um, end of 2021, so I uh, needed a break for 2022, but um, yeah, I just sort of, I love learning and I didn't study while I was playing, which I sort of regret a little bit, but um when I came back, I thought I had this skill set of only – I've just used my feet for my whole career and how do I sort of, you know, like develop a new skill set and, you know, I went back and studied a Bachelor of Business with a major in accounting in bars Indonesia. Um, and um, also then I went sort of studied a career sort of counselling course after I finished that through my role as a player Development Manager with the Players Association. And um, in 2021, I had the opportunity during COVID to sort of do a grad cert in international relations, um, so I completed that, and um, yeah, just sort of, I love learning. I want to probably go back again and keep on studying, maybe in a year or two's time. And I just, you know, like just constantly learning. I sort of done my A, li- uh, my C license in coaching. I done my B license, didn't have my assessment in. It's too lazy uh, to do it. And um, so, you know, I just think you know, I'm always encouraging players to you know, keep on learning, keep on evolving. You know, keep on trying to better yourself and be the best you can be. So. Um, I think you're never too young to stop learning, so, or never too old to stop, keep keep on learning.
0: Being an Indonesianist, I start to see you a lot at um, events that aren't even sport-related. Uh, the last time I saw you was at Australia-Indonesia Tourism WA con- conference with the, you know, Premier yep. of Yeah, Indonesia Connect. Yeah, Indonesia
1: yep. Connect, that's the word. Thanks for um, reminding me. <laughs> great. It was great to see you there, you know. It's fantastic to, you know, see you guys there, Football West, and it's phenomenal, so...
0: Yeah, it's, it is really important to to us to be there as well, and you know just have that visibility because there's some big players in those rooms, so it, it's Definitely. important. And and what's so interesting is you learn about different industries who are all going through the same types of challenges as well. And how are you finding that transition to now working with other industries that are you know looking at Indonesia, but you're you're really helping them. You're a advisor in many instances as well.
1: Um sort of it's it's like sort of you know being the president of the Indonesia Institute and speaking to all these different sort of like sort of industries and businesses look to sort of you know jump into Indonesia. There's always you know sort of negative stories about Indonesia, but there's so many good stories of people doing some really good things and you know partnerships in Indonesia and he's just saying to them, you know, like it's just like anything takes time. It takes, you know, like you got to go up there and you've got to immerse yourself in the culture and in the country as well. It's not you know indonesia is not somewhere you're going to sort of go up there and it's going to be transactional it's going to be relationship based and um to so just to say you know you know if you do work hard it, you'll be a success up there and just sort of like just how do you say it? and also using football or that sort of or you know that soft diplomacy as a means to build those people to people links or those business to business links or those government to government links and it's just a bit of an education piece that someone like myself went up there and I've never been to Indonesia before and loved it, you know, sort of want to keep on continuing going up there. I've been Indonesianists, have got so many people like, for example, on our board of the Indonesia Institute that have been up there, have done so many fantastic things and they're Australians as well. And um and if you put the time and effort into it, um, you know, that you you can be a success up there as well. Cause I think a lot of people look you know, further than Indonesia. Indonesia is almost like this invisible country, you know, to our, our nearest neighbour. People look further to China and other places when we've got Indonesia, our nearest neighbour, and, you know, we've got partnerships and sorts of win-win for both countries and trying to encourage even Indonesians to come here to Australia and vice versa. And uh, for me, it's just about lobbying and on behalf of, you know, like sort of Indonesia and sort of, you know, trying to develop those better links between WA and, you know, like also Australia and Indonesia and something that I'm extremely passionate about.
0: Apart from being there and immersing yourself in person, for the listener, is there any advice on any resource or book or podcast or anything that's really helped you and or could help somebody understand Indonesia and prepare them?
1: Um, I think you know I, I like to read a lot of really good articles from Professor Tim Lindsay from the Melbourne University. I also like Duncan Graham. You know he writes some really good, hard hitting articles. He's honest. He he calls both sides out. He keeps both sides of the you know, and Indonesian and also Australian sides. Honest, um, Professor Ben Bland's good as well, um, Ross Taylor, the former president of the Indonesian Institute and founder, he wrote some, wrote some really good articles as well, um, but also, you know, if you want a light-hearted one about sort of culture and sort of, you know, seeing it from a different lens, you know, like, how said um his name is um, far out, Damien Hu. And He's on Instagram and he has some pretty cool videos and but he also brings to, to attention some you know like things that you know we can do better as Australians as well to understand Indonesia a lot better as well. So there's some pretty good sort of resources out there, it's just sort of really engaging with like like, like for example, us, you know, the Indonesia's always happen to help out the Australia Indonesia Business Council, the Australia Indonesia Youth Association, and you know, all the cons of the general who's doing a fantastic job as well, you all this Diana. And also you've got your investment trade team as well, you know, job Tourism science and innovation. So so many people that or resources out there to want to help, you know, like grow the relationship and just ask, you know, like ask the question because I think there's always people that are willing to help out. So yeah.
0: Thanks for sharing those, mate. We'll put them in the show notes. And I guess Robbie, um, what's next for you? And I see you you are coaching and getting out there with the local club seeing you in um you know the western knights which is so good to see i'm sure the players really appreciate that and 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 going out on the circuit you know speaking to young people which is inspiring what do you see for yourself in the next period of time
1: from a football point of view, I'm really enjoying coaching my, my little boy and my little girl, you know, washing the clusters, you know, like, and my stepsister, she was the former president of Western Knights, and my stepmom washes the jerseys. And so we're really sort of immersed in the club and, um, and, you know, love taking them down there just to watch, watch the games. And it was great to see you down there as well. And, you know, being able to sort of just sit back and watch the games and see my kids run around, the, run, run around the ground and just do what I was doing, just developing really good friends and, you know, like, I think we lose sight of you know how good clubs are from a community aspect and how it brings people together and yeah I just sort of really love that. So from that football point of view, you know, it's just really enjoying my time, watching my kids grow, and hopefully you know play football as well or other sports as well, Um, you know playing cricket as well. But um, from a work point of view as well, I I finished working up at the PFA. I probably was there for almost six years and play development program and it was it was i enjoyed it so much but i sort of i probably needed a new challenge and now i've been the last 14 months working for a little startup company in horticulture um which has been really fantastic out of my comfort zone working with some really cool people and just learning so much and just yeah developing a new skill set and sort of trying to use my degree and my sort of knowledge to you know to to other to another industry and um, from an Indonesia point of view, just really enjoying my role and my time as the president of Indonesia Institute and just got a really fantastic board and such a really good diverse group of people, um, you know, female, male, Indonesian, you know, Australian. We all speak the language. We're all passionate about Indonesia. We all live there. And So how do I help grow the, grow the relationship and just use it? Is my sort of position as a bit of a bit of a voice, bit of an education piece on, you know, like how great Indonesia can be. And because so I think sometimes the media does portray Indonesia in this negative light and just trying to sort of, you know, sort of, you know, sort of counter that. But, um, yeah, just sort of really enjoying life, you know, enjoying my time with my kids and just hopefully seeing, you know, hoping the Matildas win the, win the Women's World Cup and hopefully, you know, the glory doing well and, um, Australia, you know, Socceroos winning, winning the Asian Cup and, yeah, just sort of really sort of just enjoying my time and, you yeah, know, happy going back to university and learning and just continuing learning and taking one day as it comes, one day at a time as it comes.
0: Oh, beautiful, mate. Beautiful. And, and there's a few things you mentioned there that I just wanted to um, zoom in on, which was athlete activism. You know, you see this in this day and age, there's a lot more demanded of players in terms of what they say and what they should be getting, um, what they should be supporting and how they actually express that. What are some of the challenges or thoughts you have around that space?
1: Um, I think it's fantastic. You know, I think the players should be able to have a voice. You know, like um, when people come out and say, oh, you should stick to your sport, I think that's, you know, like that's a pretty, how do you say it, ignorant view. You know, like, you know, I think that, you know, because athletes are, so, you know, they're at the coalface. You know, it's very uh, sport is very transient. I say, like, from an A-League point of view, when we've done a study, you're a professional for 2.7 years, so it's not very long, you know. So um, I think athlete activism is fantastic, you know, like, um, and if players want to speak out, I think it's fantastic as well. And um, we're seeing a lot more of it, which is great. And, um, you know, they, they have a pretty big reach with their social media and their voices and... I think it's great, you know. Like, and you know, I think it's, you know, I encourage it if they want to do it, if they're comfortable with it as well. But only if they're comfortable with it as well. You don't want to force them to do something they don't want to do. And I think it's great, you know, because I think you know they they should be able to talk about you know challenges, you know, whether it be you know climate, whether it be you know other other issues as well. You know, I think it's it's great to see that, and it's you know hopefully you know long may continue and grow as well. So
0: yeah thank you, mate. yeah. and uh, another one as well was just around those in those differences between Indonesia and Australia. And one that I've thought about a little bit is the fact that it's it's a Muslim country, you know it's the biggest Muslim country in the world. Uh, I was really interested in your you know firsthand experience as an athlete and also as a person living in living in that environment. What are um, our misperceptions about all that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we've got a lot of probably misperceptions about it as well and a lot of my friends are Muslim now and they've got a lot of really close friends and it's just the same as us, good people. And, you know, that's a sort of, you know, religion and just about treating people with respect and being humble and humbling, you know, uh, and also being there during Ramadan and just really, you know, experiencing that as well. And um, I learned so much from them as well and, um, it's been such a fantastic experience to go over there as well and be able to immerse myself in that culture and just sort of, because I think we're so, how do you say, in a bit of a pigeonhole or, you know, like sort of here in WA, we're not sort of, this was you know, back when I was sort of growing up as well, it wasn't really sort of, I didn't really experience it too much, but going to Brunei, going to Malaysia, going to the largest in, you know Muslim country in the world, Indonesia, and just learning about you know, like sort of Islam as well. And, you know, like, and learning to appreciate, you know, like, you know, the culture and the religion as well. And how do you say it? Um, you know, understanding, you know, like, and it's the more people can go there and understand it's just we're all the same, you know, like just about being a good person, respecting each other and being humble, being humility and respecting people for, for their beliefs and their culture and stuff like that. And, you um, I think we got a lot of you know not all of us, but some of us do have a lot of in here, and that sort of respecting people's cultures and people's religions and stuff like that. So yeah, it's something that sort of you know I really enjoy when I was over there. so
0: Ramadan is an interesting time to be a footballer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what were some of the adjustments you had to make as a as a team and yeah. that regimen?
1: um I remember in Brunei, we we're training at 10 pm in the evening during Ramadan. um in Malaysia we'd stop we'd stop, the the league would stop as well. Um, In Indonesia, sometimes we'd play right through or alumni and I had so much respect for the players that, you know, were playing games during fasting month. It was just, for them to be able to do that, I was just sort of, you know, blown away by, you know, the resilience and, you know, like just being able to do that, you know, not being able to drink from sun up to sundown, not being able to eat as well and, you know, they'd break fast and they'd go off and play a game and they'd still be running, you know, by 90 minutes and um, just so much respect for them and, you know, they appreciate You know what they're doing as well, and how do you say it? Um, Yeah, so how do you say it? We'd also sometimes train, you know, during you know fasting month, and they'd train, and then go off and break fast, and you know, I'd make sure I wasn't sort of you know drinking during training as well, and I'd sort of you know like show respect because I'm in some you know like I was in Indonesia, it's their country, and you know I'll try and respect you know the culture as well as much as possible, and just really yeah, how do you say not eating in front of you know friends that were fasting, not drinking in front of friends that were fasting, just you know, small things, you know, develop that when you're there, I think also through learning the language, you develop that cultural competency, you know, that Indonesian literacy, just, you know, like, you know, just a sign sort of respect as well, I think goes a long way when you're there. So
0: Robbie, really, really thank you for your time. I think respect is one of the key themes. And I just love your ability to be so adaptable. And everywhere you've gone, you've you really left a mark. And uh you know you're someone definitely admire and will be following closely your your next steps and, and i got to say thank you as well for building those bridges between the two countries and hopefully they um, they keep bearing fruits thank you so much for joining yeah, no, me on the show mate. Thank,
1: thanks a bit mate it's been an absolute pleasure I'm humbled to be able to sort of come on this show and be able to speak to you about my time you know like sort of my career so far mate you're doing an amazing job and you know as I was saying before the speakers you've had have been phenomenal and sort of yeah i thoroughly enjoy listening to the, the podcast man you doing an amazing job
0: thank you robbie there we have it that was a lot of fun thank you so much for listening as a community cultivated independent podcast your support is really really helpful so this frio de janeiro podcast can continue until next time keep smiling keep scoring